So we're kicking off with uh, a man, uh, it's very hard, when I mean, you begin to meet people who are younger than you, and you realize they're also actually better than you. You know, that's a generational <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, the first time I had it was, well, well, I think, with Stefan. Uh, he is, uh, if people were to do a network analysis of uh, the historical sciences uh, in, in Europe in the last 25 years, uh, Stefan would be uh, what a network term is called a super node. Uh, I don't think anybody is further than two degrees of separation uh, away from each other because everybody knows Stefan or knows somebody who knows Stefan. Um, and that might be because he's just a nice bloke, and, which he is, but uh, it's also because he's an absolutely sterling historian. Uh, so he has been able to, uh, to combine uh, an immense, uh, uh, I would say almost discipline-building uh, capability with a great engagement with the sources and hard, thinking hard about the sources and laying down uh, his, his analyses in, in finely written books. Um, and it's also uh, something that might be stressed that his, he writes very good English, unless he has very strong you know, copy editors somewhere <laughs> in, in, you know, in the basement. Um, he started off uh, uh, in, in the Rhineland, uh, in Cologne. He's back in the Rhineland, the wrong part of it. And, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, um, so, uh, and, but he, he also did, a, if, you, if you like, a circular trajectory in that he started off as, a, if I, uh, get him right as a, a social political historian, and he's returning to that. Um, he started off with um, a thesis in Cologne about party political history, and you're now uh, director of the um, Institute for Social Movements um, in Bochum, um, and, and there's definitely a continuity there, and that was uh, lost from side for the rest of us who basically saw the British part of Stephen's career between Oxford and Manchester, uh, when he uh, engaged with um, uh, the history of history writing, uh, not in a sort of um, a remote uh, you know, epistemological or, 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 or rhetorical way, but in a very engaged way, how, do, how does history writing construct the nation? So the, po the poetical and disp dispositional force of history writing in national constructs. And also as a marvelous counterpart to the Vieux de Mémoire project, I think writing the nation there will stand alongside Lieu de Mémoire. If Lieu de Mémoire dealt with memory constructs of the nation, uh, Stefan did the history and, and the actual historiographical input in that. He brought together a large and magnificent team of people doing this. And you know how slow historians are. He managed to <laughs> you know, uh, uh, transport this wheelbarrow full of frogs over many years uh, to a glorious conclusion. The, the series stands as a marvelous achievement uh, on, on the political and ideological impact of the history of history writing in Europe over two centuries. He himself uh, curated the project, co-edited or co-edited volumes, and also wrote, and it's also a testimony to his collegiality that he co-wrote uh, many of these books. So um, he's a man whom I really admire to bits, and I'm very, very uh, curious and excited to look forward to what he has to say on confronting the other, perceiving the self, national historiographies, and national stereotypes in 20th century Stephen. Thank you very much, Yuk, uh, for this uh, very kind uh, introduction. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether uh, I can quite uh, fulfill all these uh, high benchmarks that are sitting uh, there.
Thanks also very much uh, to Jürgen, uh, Johnny, and the organizers of this uh, conference for inviting me. It's nice, uh, always nice to be uh, back in uh, Dublin for a number of years. I was here mainly for the Irish Research Council, um, but uh, for some reason, for some years, I haven't been invited back to the Irish Research Council, so it's nice to be here. I don't know whether I did anything wrong, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, there is a ban if you have done it for too long, oh, okay. you need to pause before we can ask you back. <laughs> right, okay, well, uh, what I want to do today is basically um, talk a little bit about uh, what uh, you've already mentioned, about national historiography, historiographies and their relationship to national stereotypes. And um, I might begin with something that perhaps many of you have seen. Uh, if you've been to the uh, Janiculum Hill overlooking Rome, uh, you have the uh, monument to Garibaldi uh, there, a, bit, uh, a little bit away from it. You have a much smaller monument to Garibaldi's wife. Um, and you also have the Museum of the Risorgimento uh, close by. Um, and uh, it's kind of still a testimony, I think, to the importance of the Risorgimento in uh, Italian history of historiography and in Italian historical culture. Uh, and it has both the monuments and the museum. They are full of the typically romantic stereotypes about uh, Garibaldi and the Garibaldian struggle, including uh, the wonderful story of uh, him and his wife. Um, and the, the, the romantic myth are so beautiful that uh, in the 19th century, when historians were beginning at least to scratch a little bit uh, at those beautiful myths, the liberal prime minister uh, Giovanni Giolitti um, closed virtually all archives, state archives, to do uh, with the Risorgimento. Uh, saying that uh, the beautiful myth of the Risorgimento should not be destroyed by historians. You can already see here the tension uh, between stereotypical representations of national history and um, the history of historiography, um, and uh, this is precisely what I would like to explore in this paper, and I begin with saying a little bit about the role and function of stereotypes, um, um, using in particular, I think, some insight from social psychology, and then I uh, say a little bit about some very basic things on national history writing, because not everyone here, I realize, is an expert on the history of historiography. And then I would like to present very briefly <coughs> five case studies uh, where the relationship, I think, between stereotyping and perceptions of national history are particularly clear. Um, and they, the case studies are about um, German-British perceptions, uh, historiographical perceptions in the First World War, um, the German Volksgeschichte in the interwar period, the uh, need to nationalize new territories in many parts of East Central and Eastern Europe uh, after the Second World War, the renationalizing of national historical narratives uh, after the end of the Second World War, and again the renationalizing of national historical narratives in the post Cold War period. And then I'll draw some tentative conclusions. So if we start with some thoughts on national stereotypes, I think um, 
We can take a very basic definition uh, like that of uh, Greenland, uh, who said stereotypes are, quote, probabilistic, generalized representations of any social group. That's a very basic uh, definition, I think, uh, of stereotypes. And uh, many social psychologists have pointed out that stereotypes are absolutely crucial, play an important role in forms of social cognition. Um, stereotypes are necessary to categorize and to simplify the world. Uh, so really we cannot live without uh, stereotypes, I think, is uh, the message from social psychology. They have an effect on perception, on thought and behavior. The problem, if you like, and that's also a problem recognized by social psychology, is that in stereotyping, uh, there is a huge uh, role for bias and for prejudice. So a crucial element of stereotyping is the denigration of the other. Um, that sort of um, goes with it, because it is about representations of social groups, and therefore you have always a kind of mechanism of the them versus us, which is also a basic mechanism in uh, national historiographical writing. So you already have a kind of common element here, I, I would argue, between uh, national history writing and stereotyping. The other thing I would like to emphasize is that, um, also an insight from social psychology, that greater intergroup anxiety leads to more stereotyping. So the more... Uh, there is anxiety in uh, intergroup relations, uh, the more people tend to rely on stereotypes. And there are few places where there is more anxiety than in national historiography. Uh, if we look at uh, Peter Fritscher and his work on national historiographies, and I quote from Peter Fritscher, he argues, the relationship between victimhood and violence is embedded in most national historiographies. The national idea is first conjured up as being under threat. And it is this state of alarm, being under threat, that produces the energy to override competing identities, often violently. Hence, Fritscher argues, violence is inscribed in the national narrative because the nation imagines itself first and foremost as a collective good that is incomplete and imperiled. In many ways, therefore, the national narrative must sustain itself by reproducing its own state of jeopardy. National histories tremble as a result. End of quote. So I think it is this trembling characteristic of national narratives that produces high states of anxiety, which makes it particularly prone to negative forms of stereotyping. If you add to this the prevalence of abstractions in negative stereotyping, um, then again you find that the othering is often um, in negative stereotyping associated with highly abstract categories, which makes the core of the stereotypes more durable. Because the more specific you are, the easier it is to contradict them. And the more abstract stereotypes are, the more difficult it, uh, it is uh, to counter them. I think that's, in a way, one reason why national histories are often characterized by an abundance of positive auto-stereotypes and an equal abundance of negative stereotypes of the other, that denigration 
of the other that is often at the heart of negative stereotyping. And of course, these others can be both internal and external in national historical writing. Um, if we look at Germany as an example, um, the German national historiographical narrative in the 19th and early 20th centuries had both prominent internal and external others, internally in particular the socialists, uh, but also the Catholics, uh, sometimes the Jews, um, externally virtually all neighbors of Germany um, who uh, were uh, faced with this kind of negative stereotyping. So if we then uh, look um, from stereotypes to national historiographies, then what uh, is happening during the long 19th century is what you can describe as the victory of scientificity in historical writing. It is in the long 19th century, it depends a little bit of where you are looking, when this is happening, but ultimately it is happening everywhere, uh, that um, a greater commitment to scientificity, i.e. a particular way of writing and doing history, a particular methodology, a particular theoretical framework that leads to a stronger delineation of the historical discipline from other disciplines and also from what is then increasingly called amateur historical writing. If you look at the 18th century and if you look at many places even in the first half of the 19th century, there isn't that clear-cut delineation. So that some of the people who are writing the key national master narratives are not actually what we would nowadays call professional so we see in the course of the 19th century a greater commitment to scientificity, and it is precisely that scientificity which gives authority to the historical discipline, i.e. historians can make a kind of claim that they are the only ones, because of their scientificity, to speak authoritatively about the past. And of course that is picked up very readily uh, by those in power, or those wanting to be in power, in Europe, because for them, then history becomes a very useful uh, discipline in order to legitimate particular um, claims to power or particular political regimes. And historians readily comply, generally speaking, um, either with uh, legitimatory or oppositional uh, narratives, depending on who they support. So that we can say that the scientificity despite its claim to, in inverted commas, objectivity, that scientificity is not connected to a depoliticization of the discipline, but rather a renewed commitment uh, to the politicization uh, of the discipline. So most scientific historians are deeply politically committed to writing in a positive way uh, the national history of their particular nation. And that scientificity, therefore, um, I would argue, is also deeply influenced by stereotypes of self and other. Um, historians um, work with the same cognition processes uh, than everyone else. They were not immune uh, to those cognition processes. And in fact, if we closely look at the way in which uh, national histories are narrated, we see uh, how prevalent and important those stereotypes are in framing the narratives of the nation. So they, in a way the, the thesis I'm pursuing here is that scientific national history writing could and did transport national stereotypes more often than it destroyed those national stereotypes. 
uh, and that this is an area that we should explore um, uh, more deeply than we have done in the past. Of course, there are historians who have tried to also work against those stereotypes, but it was always a kind of uh, dangerous business for historians. There are famous cases in the history of historiography where uh, historians who try to counter particular national stereotypes uh, were almost destroyed, or the career was almost destroyed by those attempts. I think, um, to give um, an example, we can think of the young um, Hungarian historian, I'm never quite sure whether I pronounce his name correctly, Shekfu, Gula uh, Shekfu, who um, was embroiled in the so-called Bakroshi controversy just before the beginning of the First World War. Uh, Bakroshi, kind of national hero of the Hungarians, um, whom um, Shekfu, the young Shekfu, presented as a kind of rejected and bitter politician who recognized his own failure at the end of his life. So uh, countering this, this myth of the kind of glorious hero who had sort of conquered all. Um, and uh, this created a, a massive vitriolic debate in the history of historiography, uh, which almost would have ruined his career. In this case, there is a happy end. Uh, because uh, he became one of the uh, best-known uh, historians of uh, modern Hungary uh, after this. But it shows, I think, that the dangers of countering stereotypes. And there are many other examples um, in the German case. If we think of interwar Germany, Emil Ludwig, uh, his biographies of Bismarck and Wilhelm II uh, brought him complete uh, um, um, separation from um, the national historiography of Germany. Actually, the, the attacks on him were so bad that he decided to move uh, to Switzerland, uh, where he settled, uh, rather sadly for him, uh, the Swiss authority in the 1930s put so much pressure on him, uh, because they in turn got pressure from the Nazis, uh, that Ludwig also had to leave Switzerland and ultimately uh, settled in the, uh, in the US. So it's dangerous uh, to counter national stereotypes, and I think this might be one reason why historians were much happier to support national stereotypes than uh, to counter them. And if we look at the, um, the case studies that I've mentioned, um, we see that uh, if we look at the First World War um, and um, the relations between British and German historiography, we see very much how this kind of stereotyping is structuring uh, the discourse uh, between these two historiographies um, in the First World War. It doesn't start in the First World War. There is a very long-standing prehistory uh, to that. Uh, if we look at British historiography before 1914, we see that it is almost kind of evenly divided between a kind of uh, pro-German and an anti-German sentiment. Um, in a sense, the pro-German one is heavily bound up with a perception that uh, the core English liberties, uh, which is the core of a kind of national historical uh, narrative before 1914, these core English liberties, they come from the depths of the Germanic forests. Uh, you know, so the Anglo-Saxons which bring this kind of with them, and therefore, in a way, the, the, the whole master narrative of Britain uh, is based on Germanic uh, uh, values. Uh, so there is a very kind of positive perception uh, of, uh, of Germans and Germany. And this we see this changing uh, with the uh, aggressive Weltpolitik of the uh, German Empire uh, after the 1890s, when increasingly you have historians who replace this kind of positive stereotype of the other with a negative one, 
and the negative one is associated with the typical kind of values of Prussianism, authoritarianism, uh, exactly the kind of lack of liberty, um, the kind of uh, um, uh, oppressive kind of nature of uh, the German uh, political system, and uh, this is then extended to the kind of German national character. And at the beginning of the First World War, this becomes the kind of dominant voice of British national historiography. Uh, Prussianism is juxtaposed to uh, English liberty, so Prussian militarism uh, versus constitutionalism, and of course the main reason for Britain entering the war, defending kind of the plucky Belgians against the kind of nasty uh, attacks from, uh, from the Germans. But even if we look at those who stick to their pro-German views, uh, William Harbour Dawson would be one example. Um, they develop um, ideas, uh, Dawson in particular, very uh, influential ideas, that there are actually two Germans. Um, and he says, well, this even so spatially he divides them alongside what in German is known as the kind of Weißwurstequator. Uh, there are kind of essentially the kind of South Germans, uh, which are kind of jovial and sort of uh, and, and happy and sort of uh, have a very liberal outlook on uh, on life, and uh, and then there are the nasty Prussians. So it's the same kind of uh, stereotyping that goes on, uh, even even though it's kind of uh, two two very different interpretative frameworks of the German other in uh, British uh, wartime historiography. And if we turn the table, we see, in a way, exactly the same. Uh, German historians, I think this is perhaps uh, much better known, uh, routinely, um, during the war, construct uh, a difference between German culture and Western civilization, uh, the German discipline versus the kind of shallowness of, uh, of the West. And of course, this is added to kind of various other national stereotypes, such as Slav barbarity and French decadence. Uh, perfidious Albion becomes a sort of uh, a strong uh, trope in uh, the wartime writings of German historians, and there are endless examples. Gerhard von Schulze-Gevernitz, the economic historian, for example, writes in 1915, and I quote, The Anglo-Saxon, in his highest form, is a man as hard as steel and of the toughest constitution, kalt wie Hundeschnauze, completely lacking in artistic temperament, the type who aims to subordinate beauty and color to brutal numbers. And of course, yeah, so you have this very sort of crude, uh, 1915, yeah, very crude sort of stereotyping. And there are, you know, I, I, I could sort of fill my three quarters of an hour with quotes like that. If we look at the second case study, uh, the rise of German Volksgeschichte in the interwar period, um, we see also the, the prevalence of those uh, stereotypes. Volksgeschichte basically is uh, very appealing to German historians after 1918. It sort of replaces uh, the state-centered historiography of pre-1914. The folk is a much stronger category than the state, especially for many younger historians, socialized uh, in the First World War and, uh, in a way, in the immediate post-war period. And it goes hand-in-hand -hand with a strong racialization and biologization of history writing uh, that's then also strongly supported by the Nazis after 1933. Race is a clearly a much more identitarian category than state, uh, so it sort of uh, reinforces the kind of um, <coughs> strong nationalism that was always there in German history writing, but was state-centered by and large before 1914 and becomes uh, increasingly race-centered uh, in uh, the interwar period. And uh, 
again, this kind of uh, racialized Volksgeschichte from sports ideas such as uh, the notion of the century-old civilizing missions of Germans in the East, uh, the idea of the German Kulturboden, the kind of cultural territory uh, where German settlements in the East are the kind of bringers of uh, civilization and culture, influences research agendas in interwar Germany. Werner Konze, uh, the well-known social historian, uh, makes a brilliant career in the post-war Federal Republic. His PhD is based precisely on the analysis of such Kulturboden uh, ideas in, um, in uh, Eastern Europe in the 19th century. And of course, we all know through research done in particular by Susanne Heim and Götz Ali, how uh, many younger historians, many representatives of this type of Volksgeschichte were involved in the ethnic cleansing by the Nazis in uh, the Second World War, the so-called Generalplan Ost, uh, which um, sort of foresaw the vast sort of ethnic cleansing of uh, Eastern Europe and the resettlement of Germans in these territories was prepared by, amongst others, Theodor Schieder, uh, again, another historian who made a brilliant post-war career in the Federal Republic uh, of Germany. So Ostforschung as well as Westforschung is the same in the West, um, and in both of these uh, stereotypes about national character very much structure research agendas and underpin analysis and interpretation. Wolfgang Petri, one of the main representatives of Westforschung, uh, is all about establishing particular linguistic, cultural, and ethnic characteristics of the Dutch and the Germans, which would bring them sort of closer together and which would ultimately justify the annexation of the Netherlands by kind of greater Germany. And sort of again, the, 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 the stereotypes uh, are extremely prevalent in, in his writings on, uh, on the Dutch. Now, I would say that a lot of this, um, this um, prevalence of national stereotypes gets uh, increased by the need to nationalize new territories uh, after the Second World War in Europe. Um, and of course, border conflicts and the rebordering of Europe already is a major issue uh, at the end of the First World War, um, when uh, a lot of the um, borders, in particular in East Central and Eastern Europe, but also in Central Europe, changed significantly, and the redrawing of boundaries through the peace treaties after the end of the First World War also means that we see uh, renewed processes of uh, nationalization and nationalizing uh, multinational societies, and the national historiographies, which play an important role in this kind of nationalizing process, uh, use multiple national uh, stereotypes in order to um, achieve that kind of end. At the end of the Second World War, we have again massive border changes uh, in Europe, which again came with the need to justify uh, the new borders and justify the uh, acquisition of uh, new territories or protest uh, the loss of, of old territories. And again, we see how uh, these, uh, these narratives all uh, recur to uh, particular stereotypical tropes, such as sort of ancient land, and the vast documentation that we find, historiographical documentation, which justify or oppose particular, um, particular uh, redrawing of boundaries, uh, are full of these uh, ideas trying to lay claim to a particular territory uh, through um, the uh, use of national stereotypes. It's interesting, again, to note here that the same person that I've just mentioned here, Oshida, uh, who uh, was uh, co-writing the Generalplan Ost for the Nazis, 
uh, in the Second World War was also the man in charge of the massive German documentation on the expulsions of Germans from East Central and Eastern Europe after uh, 1945. So we have the, a variety of stereotypes, you know, on the, say on the Polish side, the aggressive German settlers versus the peaceful Slav people. Uh, on, on the German side, we continue to find notions of uh, cultural stereotyping, um, Eastern laziness, for example, sort of the lack of culture, the, the, the very strong mode of sort of Germans as bringers of culture and civilization. Uh, which actually continues pretty much beyond uh, the watershed of 1945. But it's not just the drawing of boundaries that leads to that kind of uh, prevalence of national stereotypes. It's also uh, the need uh, to renationalize historiographical narratives in the post-Second World War, which brings me to my fourth example. Because in, at the end of the Second World War, uh, arguably many of the traditional national historical narratives are in crisis. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the continent more or less lies in, in, in ruins and there is a sort of deep questioning of uh, national historiographies. And what we see then is the attempt to restabilize traditional national historical narratives after 1945 and again uh, particular um, forms very established stereotypes are used um, for that effect. If we look, for example, uh, at Germany after 1945, one of the few things that, uh, historically speaking, uh, historians could sort of uh, save from their commitment to National Socialism uh, was the anti-communism. And it is well known that anti-communism becomes an important bridge uh, from uh, National Socialism to post-war federal, to the post-war federal republic. And in the writing of historians, what we find time and again is the association of communism with Asianness. And it's, it's the Asianness of, uh, of communism, of the Soviet Union, which makes it so alien and which allows historians to write the Soviet Union out of European history. It's not, it's deliberately <coughs> not, not Europe. And we have the rise of a kind of very traditional Abendland ideology uh, after 1945, which again, uh, the continuities are striking there. If we look at the, the final war year, uh, the propaganda ministry of Goebbels uses precisely the same image of the European Abendland and saving the Abendland from the kind of communist, from the communist threat. But in different ways, we find sort of similar processes at work elsewhere. If we look at Britain, uh, we have essentially after 1945 an extension of Britishness to uh, what is often referred to as the people, so uh, you find a kind of democratization of the master liberal uh, narrative uh, after 1945, which is sort of encapsulated in the phrase the people's war, Angus Calder's uh, famous uh, book. Um, the notion that in some respects um, uh, the fact that the Second World War was won by Britain had to do with kind of ordinary British people who had to be rewarded for that meant not only the creation of the NHS and sort of schemes such as Homes Fit for Heroes, but also the fact that you now have increasingly a national historical master narrative that is much more inclusive uh, of uh, the working classes than uh, the national master narrative had been before 1945. Uh, one can really sort of go through Europe and see kind of similar processes um, at work where traditional national historical narrative are, um, are stabilized using the kind of um, stereotypical constructions of national character that are inherent uh, in the pre-war national historical um, 
uh, narratives. In Italy, we have a kind of uh, very strong narrative of the kind of risorgimento reloaded. Uh, fascism is routinely portrayed uh, both by socialists and by conservative historians. If you think of Salvemini on the one hand and Chabot on the other, um, they both portray um, the, the fascism as a form of anti-risorgimento and the anti-fascist resistance becomes the kind of standard bearers of the of the Risorgimentos or the Brothers Roselli or organizations such, such, such as Justicia and Liberta who are seen in a kind of positive continuity to uh, the national master narrative. Uh, in Eastern Europe, of course, we do have massive change in one, on one level because uh, we have um, uh, the installment of communist regimes under the protection of uh, the Red Army. Um, but if we look at the master narratives, the historical master narratives, again, we see a surprising amount of continuity. In a, in a way, you could say that the, the historical master narratives get a kind of red gloss, uh, but under the red gloss, uh, many of the traditional narratives, uh, including the canons of national enemies and national heroes and of key events in those national historiographies that have been well established by very bourgeois historiography, uh, in the 19th and early 20th century uh, continue. I won't have time to go into that. Maybe we can come back to that in the, in the uh, discussion. Finally, if we look at the post-Cold War period, um, we have, of course, well-documented in many post-communist states, um, national histories harking back to very positive auto-stereotypes and uh, to negative uh, othering, which uh, usually goes back to the interwar period. Um, communism is routinely denounced as a kind of foreign rule, uh, so something that is imposed uh, on, uh, on these nations. I guess one of the best known examples is the Budapest uh, House of Terror uh, exhibition where you have precisely this kind of uh, national narrative. Um, but of course you have a very, uh, you have again, you know, the, the Russians are sort of uh, are Asian, for example, if you look at Ukrainian national historical narratives uh, after um, the 1990s, uh, it's again similar, sort of Russians are Asians, Ukrainians are Europeans, so the trope of the Asian Russians is uh, very strong here also incidentally in the Baltic states. Um, I think uh, there is a kind of... Um, uh, very problematic uh, re-legitimation of authoritarian right-wing political leaders uh, from the interwar period. Uh, again, if we think of Hungary, Istvan Tisa uh, received his rehabilitation uh, after the end of the Cold War, or in the Ukraine, arguably even more problematic, the deeply anti-Semite Pedura, who becomes a national hero uh, in the National History Museum in Kiev um, uh, in the displays uh, there. And I think most recently we had a, a paper about that uh, yesterday. If we look at the uh, museum wars in Poland, in particular around the Museum of the Second World War, we again see this kind of uh, tension between um, the desire to come to more critical forms of national self-understanding and very stereotypical confirmations of traditional forms of national history. Like. But it's not only an East European phenomena. If we look at Western multinational states, Spain, uh, Britain, um, uh, Belgium, uh, we see uh, similar forms of um, um, national historical narratives referring to a whole host of national stereotypes. Catalan national history in Spain, um, anyone who visited the 
Catalan National History Museum, scripted by very nationalist uh, historians. Uh, you see in that museum that Catalonia, throughout the centuries, had relations with uh, every possible part of the world except with Spain. An absent other in that uh, museum. Uh, in Scotland, the kind of uh, a nationalism that often likes to portray itself as a civic left-wing uh, nationalism still. Uh, at the same time emphasizes the deep uh, cultural roots of Scottishness, the fact that the Scottish government is now funding dozens of scholarships uh, to do cultural heritage uh, in Scotland points to the kind of ambivalences, I think, between this alleged civic nationalism and um, the slippery slope towards a kind of cultural nationalism. And in Flanders, Bart de Weber, uh, the leader of the um, Flemish uh, nationalists has long championed an autonomous history of Flanders going back to very traditional 19th century uh, perceptions uh, of Flanders. I could even say that in Germany, the German search for normality after reunification, uh, best exemplified by Heinrich August Winkler's uh, Long Way West, uh, is also in a way uh, a stereotypical attempt to arrive at a kind of European yardstick, a kind of normative West, a good West to which finally uh, the Germans could uh, also uh, pay allegiance. And of course, uh, if we look at uh, Brexit history, um, the history of historiography has, I would argue, long prepared Brexit uh, ideologically. If you look at someone like David Starkey, one of the most prominent television historians uh, in Britain, he gave the Historical Association's Medical Lecture in 2001, which was a big lament for uh, the, la the loss of kind of national history writing. I quote from this lecture, David Starkey, maybe we have a future as a series of disparate regions of the European Union. But where a history, where an English history fits in, a sense of England as a place that once existed, that once mattered, that once was glorious, I'm not sure. Yeah. Hopefully he is sure now. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, uh, in terms of conclusions, what does all of this amount to? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think that in scientificity, the claims of uh, stereotype breaking um, has to be juxtaposed to a reality of stereotype confirmation in national history writing. Much of national history writing, I think, incorporates and relies on very traditional national stereotypes. And... If we look at the 20th century, I think we can see that uh, for these frames familiar from national stereotyping rely always on a negative othering and on, if you like, a binary between a negative othering and positive auto-images. Um, the images of national character, it is argued, are shaped by history. So a very Herderian notion of the national character uh, is sort of legitimated by reference to historical development and historical evolution. So a form of historicism is underpinning uh, this kind of national stereotyping. I think it is particularly mobilized, particularly visible, particularly strong in times of conflict, which is also why I chose my case studies. If we look at war, if we look at ethnic cleansing, if we look at post-war reconstruction periods, we find this particularly strongly represented in historiographical writings. And so I would argue that historians need to explore much more 
the role of stereotypes in history writing and in historical narratives because they have an important impact on the grand narratives uh, that have shaped uh, our national historiographies for a very long time. Recently, um, this has begun. I think uh, Mark Knights, for example, in a very interesting collection published by CUP, Psychology and History, in 2014, has argued, and I quote, history and social psychology share interests in the social sphere, the arts of persuasion, and the formation of attitudes. As a result, both disciplines, history and social psychology, both disciplines are interested in the construction, manipulation, dissemination, and evolution of stereotypes and the prejudices on which they feed, end of quote. So in a way, we need to examine the language of the historian with the tools of social psychology, and my preliminary survey would suggest that this is going to be a very rich field, which in some respects is not surprising, because if you look at the ancient world, rhetoricians in the ancient world had been very aware of the usefulness of negative stereotyping to put down an adversary. Thank you very much. Thank you.